I'd like to ask the rest of you to turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 10, beginning this morning in verse 17. While you're turning there, I just want to highlight again our Wednesday night opportunity. Um, we have a praise and thanksgiving service. It's the one Wednesday of the year when we, um, I like to think of it as offering a sacrifice of praise because we don't ask God for stuff on this Wednesday. We take the opportunity to thank Him uh, for all the things that He has done, and we will do that through song and through Scripture and through the opportunity to share testimonies of ways that God has demonstrated His love and faithfulness to you over this last year. So uh, you come Wednesday night, 7 o'clock, and uh, kind of tune your heart for Thanksgiving Day so that uh, the right uh, spiritual frame of mind is created as we uh, go to all of that wonderful food and uh, all kinds of things that we have uh, you know, planned for Thanksgiving Day. Wednesday evening is an opportunity to set it all in perspective. God has given us great bounty. Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 17, the 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will injure you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you. But rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. At that very time, he rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit and said, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. Turning to His disciples, He said privately, Blessed are the eyes which see the things you see. For I say to you that many prophets and kings wish to see the things that you see and did not see them, and to hear the things which you hear and did not hear them. Last week we were looking at Jesus sending out the 70. Now, without uh, any further information on the detail of their mission, if we're going we're to call it a mission trip, with the detail of their mission trip, they come back and it's reported what happens when they come back. I want to take just a moment before we get into the verse by verse here and look at the way that Jesus went about training and developing disciples. Um, he has these people that have been following him for some time. The twelve are kind of like the inner circle, and if you want to think of Peter, James, and John, they're sort of the inner circle of the inner circle. And then there are these seventy, and there's probably even more, uh, both men and women that are following Jesus, uh, doesn't mean they're with him every single day. Doesn't mean they're having big campouts, you know, somewhere. But 
they are staying with Jesus and they're with Him every opportunity. They've been watching Him uh, perform miracles, heal the sick, uh, bring deliverance to those that are in bondage. They've been listening to His messages. Jesus uh, very clearly gave the same kinds of message to different audiences on different occasions, so they heard the same thing uh, over and over again. Uh, By the way, sometimes I repeat myself. Uh, Most of the time, it's because I intend to. Every once in a while, I don't know I'm doing it, but usually it's because I intend to. And part of the reason for that is, um, people who study these kinds of things say that you, you have to hear something seven or eight times before it really sticks. And that's assuming that you're paying attention and you want it to stick. So, um, you know, Jesus is saying these things, but the disciples have had the opportunity to listen and begin to assimilate in their minds and hearts this body of truth that uh, is characterized by proclaiming the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus calls them to himself and he says, I want you to go out. Uh, They've been watching him. They've been kind of doing it with him. Now he's going to send them out on their own. And he tells them what to take and what not to take and what to expect and what to do and and how to do it. And he gives them instruction. He sends them out. And then they go out and they gain this experience. They've been preaching and proclaiming and uh, bringing deliverance and healing the sick. And they come back. And they give a report. They kind of download or debrief all the things that they have experienced while they've been gone. And uh, Jesus comments on it. He gives them some reflection and feedback and helps them to uh, put in perspective what they've observed and learned during their own uh, excursion away from Him. This is a tremendous model for discipleship. Uh, You know, in the field of medicine, they have a saying... uh, See one, do one, teach one. And the idea is that you, you watch somebody do it, and then you try it yourself under supervision, and then you kind of do it yourself, and then you teach somebody how it's done. And, and really the teaching is where it really gets cemented in. Um, the things that I teach, I know more thoroughly than anything else. Uh, and, and I love to teach for that reason. I, obviously, I mean, God's called me to do that, and... I have the aptitude for it, but I love to teach because it really fixes in my heart and mind the the information, the truths that I want to convey. But notice how Jesus has taken these alongside. He's trained them. He's developed them. He gives them practical experience. He brings them back. He debriefs with them. He analyzes what's happened, and he helps them to grow. And we need to pay attention to that kind of discipleship here. We need to be the kind of church that wherever you are in your spiritual journey, listen, if you're more than two days old in Jesus, you've learned something. If you've learned something, you can pass it on. And as you move along and learn more, you can pass more on, and then the people that you bring along, they can begin to share what they've learned. And that's how Jesus intended the church to to grow and mature. In fact, Paul says to Timothy, the things that you have learned and heard and seen in me, these things uh, impart to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. In other words, choose people 
that you know can pass on what you've learned from me. So that the message goes on and on and the, the maturity level and the development of the disciples <clears throat> grow. Uh, there's a lot to be learned just from observing Jesus' methods. Now, as these 70 return, uh, notice what they say to Him. Lord, even the demons are subject to us in Your name. Notice the tense of the verb. Are subject to us. Not were, but are. Uh, these 70 are really excited because as they went out, they found out that they could cast out demons. They could effect deliverance. People that were in bondage were, were dramatically healed. I mean, this was great stuff. And uh, they are continuing now under the impression that they have this power in the name of Jesus and that uh, this, is a, this is a tremendous gain. And Jesus initially affirms that. He comments on that. He says, um, and He said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will injure you. So the first thing Jesus does is affirm them in their reaction. You know, this is Jesus. This is just fantastic. We, we can cast out demons. I mean, they didn't talk about healing. They didn't talk about preaching the gospel, proclaiming the kingdom. They didn't talk about how many people wanted to be followers of Jesus based on their message. They talked about the fact that in that ooh, scary world of demons, they, they had power and authority in Jesus' name. But then Jesus says, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. Jesus brings perspective. Uh, the disciples are excited because they have the power to effect deliverance. Jesus tells them that what should really excite and motivate them is that they have eternal life. The most thrilling thing is that they have been delivered, that their sins have been forgiven, that their names are written uh, as we learn in other places of Scripture in the Lamb's Book of Life, that they have eternal life. They have a relationship with the Father. They can enjoy His covering and His protection. And they can live eternally in His presence. That's something to be grateful for. It's neat that God uses us in the process of healing. It's, it's neat that He will take us into... Uh, his counsel in the process of deliverance and setting the captives free. It's very special that He will give us the privilege of sharing the good news. But the most important thing of all is that once I was lost, but now I'm found. Once I was blind, but now I see. Uh, the Lord Jesus Christ has shed His blood for me and saved me and redeemed me, and I have 
eternal life. He doesn't cut the you know cut him off at the knees right away, <laughs> but uh, after talking about seeing Satan fall like lightning, he puts very quickly into perspective what they should be uh, very excited about. Now, pardon? Yeah, okay. <laughs> all right, even higher. All right. Now, I want to go back and look at verse 18 for a moment, because I want to ask you something. And he said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Um, this brings to mind a couple of things. Number one, what did Jesus actually see? What kind of vision was he actually having? Uh, it calls to mind for me, where is Satan right now? This moment. And if you ask where is he now, then you can kind of extrapolate backwards and say, where was he when Jesus asked the question? And I want you to look with me in Revelation chapter 12 for the answer uh, to these questions because it's there that we discover um, something about uh, where Satan is and what he's doing. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 7, as you're turning there, let me give you some background. This chapter takes place in the middle of the tribulation period. Now, Many of you are, are, have studied the doctrines of last things called eschatology. Uh, and you are aware that at the end of time, as we move toward the return of Jesus Christ, the, the world is going to be uh, disintegrating uh, morally and physically and, and spiritually in, in, in many respects. And Jesus said, as we approach the end, we're going to see things like wars and rumors of wars increase. Um, there are going to be all kinds of cataclysms, uh, of disasters, natural disasters. The atmosphere is going to change. The sun and the moon are even going to change their appearance. Um, and we'll move into a period that the Scripture calls the Great Tribulation. It's seven years of horrible affliction. Now, that seven-year period is significant because it's global in nature, uh, not because um, it's the worst thing that's ever happened. Uh, the things that communist China did when they took over uh, to Christian families and, and to children, um, you know, things like um, putting their parents on platforms and mowing them down with machine guns and having the children go forth and wipe their hands in the blood of their parents and uh, denying Christ and affirming uh, communism and being given a leather-bound, gold-edged copy of the sayings of Chairman Mao. I mean, to think about that, how close that resembled the Bible. Uh, it's hard to imagine anything worse than that. For, for an individual, if you were in the World Trade Towers, uh, the Twin Towers on the day of 9-11 um, and survived that, it's hard to imagine any worse disaster for a person to go through. And we could go on with typhoons and, and, and the current uh, 
plagues that are coming out of Africa that people are experiencing. But the difference in the seven years of Great Tribulation is that all of these things will be happening simultaneously all over the world, uh, all at once. And the scripture says it's going to be a very, very disastrous time. It will be characterized by two things. One is the wrath of God poured out on the human race for its long-standing rebellion and, and growing defiance of uh, kind of shaking its fist in the face of God, denying even his existence and persisting in rebellion. That's a part of it, is God's judgment. Uh, and then the other part of it is that Satan himself, and this brings us to chapter 12 in Revelation, about halfway through this period is going to be cast down to the earth and he is going to express his great hatred toward uh, the nation of Israel and, and whatever believers may be uh, living at that time on the earth. Uh, Satan is going to uh, ex- just drive his venom and animosity toward them with a peculiar hatred because he has ultimately and finally been dethroned And this occurs right before, actually three and a half years before, Jesus uh, comes in glory and power to establish his millennial kingdom. So so this is the context of Revelation chapter 12. Beginning in verse 7 says, And there was war in heaven, Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. The dragon and his angels waged war, and they were not strong enough, and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan. He who deceives the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. He who accuses them before our God day and night. And they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life even when faced with death. For this reason rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. And woe to the earth and the sea because the devil has come down to you having great wrath, knowing that he has only a short time. And when the dragon saw that he was thrown down to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman so that she could fly to the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for a time, times, and a half time from the presence of the serpent. And the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman so that he might cause her to be swept away with a flood. But the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and drank up the river which the dragon poured out of his mouth. So the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her children who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Now, there's a lot of uh, imagery and metaphor in in this section, but to, to distill it down for us, essentially what's happening is, at this moment in that seven year period, right about the middle, uh, Satan is literally cast out of out of the heavenlies, and he is thrown down to the earth, and all of his angelic beings that followed him in his original moral fall, 
a third of the angels come down with him. And they know they only have a short period of time before Jesus comes blazing forth in glory and great power in his bodily return. And so they persecute Israel and uh, whatever believers are there. And they uh, seek to uh, make war with them. Did you notice in the passage where Satan is right now? He's in heaven accusing us. He's before the throne of God accusing us. I find it very interesting that some people say it's not possible for demons to dwell in the same place as the Holy Spirit. Oh, really? Well, the devil is dwelling in the same place before the throne of God. What's he doing there? You know, listen... God is not put off by the presence of a few demons or the devil. doesn't affect his holiness. doesn't bother him. And uh, by the way, I can't go into all of the, the history of the, the fall of Satan and when that occurred and whatever, and some of that's a little bit vague anyway, but the, the point is that God brings judgment but often waits to deliver it. If you even think today of human beings, all of us are born in sin, and some go on to be great sinners. And God frequently delays His judgment. In their case, waiting for them to repent. Satan is not going to repent, but some other things happened contractually. I mean, like a legal contract. Some other things happened uh, back in the garden that have entitled him uh, to a period of influence before his judgment ultimately comes. Right now, today, he is before the throne of God accusing us day and night. Um, and, and, all the, and all the believers across the world, you know. Uh, did you see what Justine did just the other day, God? <laughs> do, you know, do you know what she's up to? Did you see what Paul did? Um, how in the world could you make a preacher out of him? Uh, what's wrong with you, God? These are terrible people. You know, and then he makes sure that we hear about it as he accuses us. That's his nature to, to, to make us, even if possible, doubt our salvation, to, to make us uh, doubt the, the cleansing of the blood of Christ, to make us doubt that we have been uh, fully restored and redeemed by His blood. Uh, it's amazing how He accuses us, and that's what He's doing right now. So I ask you, what is it that Jesus saw in verse 18 when He said, I saw Satan falling like lightning from heaven? If that's something that's not going to occur until the middle of the tribulation prophetically. And I believe that the key to that is, and by the way, the, the actual Greek here is not lightning, it's like um, uh, uh, flashes of light or paths of light. Remember that Satan's uh, proper name is Lucifer, and do you know what it means? The morning star or the shining one. 
And He appears to us through His spirits as an angel of light to deceive us if possible. And so His very name means the one who has light. And Jesus, I think, is saying to us, I was watching Him every time you preached, every time you brought deliverance to someone, every time you healed, as you were going out, and I was praying for you, because you can be sure He was praying for them. Jesus said, I was watching Satan fall time and time and time again as the darkness was pushed back by the, the message of the kingdom of God. And, and the powers of darkness were defeated. I was seeing Satan fall. And every time the gospel goes forth in advancement and in power, as the people that sit in darkness see the true light, and Jesus Christ comes and they turn to Him, and the darkness is, is pushed away, that Jesus Christ is glorified and Satan is defeated, Little by little, person by person, nation by nation, God is winning the victory and calling a people unto Himself from every tribe and tongue and nation. And one day it will come about that Satan is literally cast out of the heavens in that great ultimate uh, fall of his before he's locked away for a thousand years. And Jesus said, this is the beginning of that. I'm watching it happen as you're going. The very verb tense here, I was watching Satan fall. You know, a lightning strike is like over in a blink of an eye. But the verb that's used here says, I was watching this again and again and again as you were out preaching and preaching and preaching. To signify that he was observing Satan's power being broken one person at a time. And one day, His total power will be broken. And we are living in that kingdom age when the devil is losing the battle. It's already won. Jesus has declared victory in the cross. It's a guaranteed defeat, but it's our privilege to go in and, and take the cities and the villages and the nations, one at a time in the language groups, as we reclaim for Jesus Christ what belongs to Him. And then he says in uh, verse 19, going back to Luke, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will injure you. Here's another very peculiar sentence. I want you to think about it for a moment. I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will injure you. Have you heard of Christian workers who have been injured? Have you heard of Christian workers who have lost their lives? Yes. Have you had, heard of Christian workers who have become ill? Yes. So what is Jesus saying? What does this mean? This is one of those 
statements that I think uh, has layers to it. It's kind of like peeling an onion. You know, there's layers and layers and layers to get to the heart of it. And some of the questions that we have to ask, we know that it is impossible for God to lie, and Jesus Christ is not telling us a lie. So the question we have to ask ourselves when we encounter a verse like this is, what does he mean by treading on scorpions and serpents, and what does he mean by not being injured? One of the things that comes to mind as we compare Scripture with Scripture to gain the interpretation is that Jesus said to his disciples, do not be afraid of the one that can kill your body, but be afraid of the one who can cast body and soul into hell. What he's saying there is, don't be concerned about human beings that can put you to death. Minor problem, right? Doesn't usually feel that way. But the biggest problem is, that if you die without Jesus Christ and stand before God in judgment, He has the authority to cast you eternally into the lake of fire and into hell. And that is a problem. I don't care how long you live. I think I heard or read somewhere of someone who, somewhere around 114, uh, recently died. I don't care how long you live. 114 is a long time, but it's not a drop in the bucket compared to eternity. And to spend eternity separated from God in, in the wrath of hell is a very serious problem. And there's no way out after death. It is appointed unto man once to die and after that the judgment. And so, we have this lifetime to make a very important decision. And Jesus says, don't be concerned about the ones that can destroy your body, because you're going to live forever if you know the Lord. You need to think about Him, not people. There is a crown for martyrs who die in the cause of Christ. And all over the world today, there are people who are giving their lives for their faith in Jesus Christ. We live in a time when people are dying. More people are dying today for their faith in Christ than died in the Roman Empire in the first few centuries after Christ. We live in a time of great persecution. So, yes, some of God's people, some of His messengers, some of His faithful followers are losing their life. Also, there are those who are suffering because they have encountered an illness or a problem that might even have at its root the enemy himself. Remember the Apostle Paul asking that his thorn in the flesh be removed. But if you study that in the original language, you find that 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 phrase is actually, there was given to me a messenger from Satan, or an angelos from Satanos, an angel of the devil. You say, whoa, wait a minute, what's he talking about? 
there's actually an evil spirit causing his bodily illness. He did have a physical problem, but at its root cause was a demonic spirit. And Paul said, I want to be rid of this thing. I mean, this is the guy that commands demons to come out at a word and they leave people and he's got this problem. He lays his hands on people and they're healed, but he's sick. And God says, my strength is sufficient for you, for my grace is made perfect in your weakness. I've said to you many times, when someone is in the emergency room and the family has gathered, there's been a tragedy. That's not the time to quote Romans 8.28. For God causes all things to work together for good to those who love the Lord and are called according to His purpose. For most people, that's very difficult to hear emotionally in the midst of trauma. It doesn't make it any less true. It's just hard to hear. Right now, I'm hurting and I need help. And I don't want to know how good this is going to turn out to be. I mean, let's face it, most of us are like that. But by the same token, it is true. And if the enemy is permitted to afflict our lives for some purpose of God, you can be sure that there is a higher purpose and a greater cause behind it that will be to our benefit. And you cannot say I'm injured if in fact I come out better for the experience. And in Paul's case, it made him a stronger, uh, more significant uh minister in the kingdom, when I say that word minister, are you still stuck in the cultural perception of that, that I'm the only one in this room that's a minister? Because I mean all of you. You're all ministers. I'm a pastor teacher in my ministry, but you're all ministers. And Paul's ministry was more effective because of that thorn in the flesh. So Jesus is not talking about that. Another thing he's not talking about is the common afflictions that that all of us encounter from time to time. He's not saying that we're going to go through this life unscathed by normal human experiences. Some minor, like a cold, or an allergy, or a flu... And some significant. I mean, a couple of years ago, I had to have a valve replaced in my heart. That's a pretty big deal. But that happens to a lot of people. And so, it doesn't mean that we're going to escape those kinds of things. What it does mean is that when we go forth in the name of Jesus, we can be assured that His covering is over us, that He will protect us from the direct onslaught and attack of the enemy, that God has given us authority in the name of Jesus to go forth in His power to proclaim the good news, and that the enemy will not be permitted to touch us in any way that will not come out to our benefit in the advancement of the gospel. But wait, there is another layer to the story. At the end of Mark's Gospel in chapter 16, Jesus says to His disciples in His commission to them, and you will tread on serpents and scorpions, they will not harm you. you. You will drink deadly poisons, they will not affect you. 
you will uh, cast out demons and speak with tongues in my name. And he goes on to explain to them the miracles of signs and wonders that will follow those who believe. And the same Apostle Paul who struggled with a thorn in the flesh when he was shipwrecked and ended up on the island along with some of the other people from the ship, they built a fire there and and the, the native peoples of the island came to assist them. And Paul reached over to put a log on the fire and the scripture says a serpent latched onto his hand. It was a very poisonous snake that the people of that area recognized. And they said to themselves and out loud, well, obviously this guy must be some kind of terrible prisoner with some terrible crime. Because even though he escaped the shipwreck, the gods are getting even and he's going to die here by the fire. He's been bitten by this very poisonous snake. And so they're waiting for Paul to keel over. And they're waiting for Paul to keel over. And they're waiting for Paul to keel over. And Paul shakes the thing off in the fire and goes on about his business. And finally they say, Oh, wait a minute. Maybe we got this wrong. There's something pretty powerful about this guy. The gods must be with him. And he's able to tell them about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because the serpent was not able to harm him. I believe that Jesus is also speaking literally here. That he is saying when there is that direct attack of the enemy through these kinds of issues like scorpions and serpents and and poison things. I've never handled a snake. I don't want to handle snakes. I would never do well in that religion. That's really weird. I grew up in the South. I've seen rattlesnakes and cotton mouths and all those kind of snakes, and I don't want to have anything to do with them. But in a much less way, it would seem, so many of you know I have food allergies, and uh, every once in a while I found myself in a situation as a guest or whatever, and the, they were not aware of that, and so they served a meal, and I'm there in the name of Jesus, and, and I kind of look at that, and sometimes there's nothing else to eat but what is going to be harmful. I tell you the truth, God is my witness, that I pray in that moment to myself, Lord, I'm here in your name. And you have promised me that if I eat anything that is going to be poison to me, it will not hurt me. And I do not want to offend my host. And so I'm going to eat this and claim the promise of your protection. And I am here to testify that every time I have done that, I have never had any ill effect of it. Not not one, not even a twinge of tummy trouble or... Uh, inflammation of my lungs or anything. Nothing whatsoever. Because I believe Jesus is saying to us literally that when you go in my name, I have given you authority. And you have the powerful name of Jesus backing you. Nonetheless, do not rejoice that you have authority over demons. 
Rejoice that your name is written uh, in heaven. Wowza. That's half the sermon. My wife told me not to say that again. Just last night at the dinner table, and here I am, saying it again. I don't know what to say. Um, Let's look at it quickly. At that very time, he rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit and said, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth. You have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent, wise and intelligent, wise and intelligent, and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this was pleasing to you, because you've given everything to me, and no one can know me uh, 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 unless you explain me, and no one can know you unless I explain him and the ones to whom I'm willing to reveal you. I ask the question in, in this next section, have you exercised your scholarship to obtain your spiritual Ph.D.? God has given you one. Did you know that? Your spiritual Ph.D. is accessible for anyone in this room who wants to have spiritual wisdom and understanding. And I have good news for you. It doesn't matter what kind of student you were in school or what kind of grades you made. The only entrance requirement into God's college is that you bow your knee before Him and ask Him humbly to teach you acknowledging that you know nothing. I'd like you to read, uh, when you get home, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, how God has uh, hidden the the truths, the, the deep things of God, from the wise and the prudent, but revealed them unto babes. Because God withholds the truths about Himself from those who arrogantly presume that through their academic training they can master spiritual truth. And he offers it to anyone who will bow their knee and come to him in prayer and ask to be taught of him. I have known many people through my life who did not have the opportunity of formal education, but who had come to know God and had great wisdom I'll just tell you one illustration that stands out to me when I was in college in North Georgia uh, trying to keep our car running, which frequently broke down. We often went to the uh, automotive junkyard to buy um, parts. And uh, there was there an old man who sat under a tree in a chair, and the proverbial junkyard dog was there beside him. He wasn't mean, however. He was a friendly sort. But, uh, you know, I would go there, and his son ran the business. The old man just kind of sat there and talked to whoever would come talk to him. And uh, through the years, he had never had the opportunity to go to school. He had no education. He could not read, nor could he write. That does not mean you're stupid, by the way. It means you're ignorant that you're uneducated, but not that you're stupid. Some people make that mistake of assuming that. He was, he was a very wise man, particularly because he had had his children and his grandchildren read the Scriptures to him. So often and so frequently that he had memorized great sums of Scripture. He had 
whole sections of the Word of God committed to memory. And he would sit there worshiping the Lord, praying and, and meditating on the Word of God that he had committed to memory. And God taught him in the school of life. And God trained him and gave him insight. And he was a delight to have a conversation with because he had great spiritual insight and perception. He could quote scriptures and put them together in ways that were amazing because he had spent long hours meditating on the Word of God. Most of the people in the first century learned the scriptures through oral uh, transmission. They listened to the stories and they learned by listening and memorizing They did not have their own Bible or iPad that they could have multiple translations, you know, with the touch of a button or the flip of a page. And because they had committed the Word of God to their memories, if they were willing to to sit before the feet of Jesus and have Him teach them, in humility He reveals Himself. Listen, friends, People go to colleges and seminaries and graduate schools and they study all kinds of academic training about the Scriptures and I'm not in any way putting that down. The Apostle Paul was an obvious example in the Bible of one who was highly trained uh, in uh, Hebrew and in Greek and in uh, Roman culture and yet Paul knew the secret of bowing before the Lord as a babe. And saying, teach me. Because if you don't teach me, I know nothing. People can fill their heads with facts. And all kinds of knowledge about the Bible. And never know the God of the Bible. You can get all kinds of degrees. And you can graduate with a Ph.D. in biblical studies. And you can have all kinds of training And have no real knowledge of God Himself. So many people spend their lives trying to learn about God. They never bother to stop and learn God. But for those of you who are willing to come humbly before Him and say, Lord, teach me. Study to show yourself approved unto God. A workman that does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of righteousness. It's not the degree you're after, it's not the diploma on the wall, it's the knowledge of Jesus. Paul said, for that I've given up everything. I want to know him. I want to know the power of his resurrection. I want to know the fellowship of his suffering. I want to be conformed to the image of his death. I want to know Jesus. If you have that passion and that hunger and you're willing to spend time in God's presence and with His Word, He will teach you. I am safe in telling you that. I am not concerned. If your heart is right before God, I am not worried that you're going to get off in some strange cult somewhere. Because if your heart is right before God and you're truly humble and you're living your life openly in God's presence, He will teach you and guide you into truth. And you have no need, John says, for anyone to teach you, for you have the Holy Spirit, and you all know. Don't dismiss me tomorrow. I still have a function in the church. 
But the Holy Spirit will train you, and He will teach you, and guide you, and give you insight. Friends, have you exercised your privilege of your spiritual scholarship? You can go to school with Jesus. You can have the author of Scripture be your daily teacher as you sit in His presence and ask Him to explain to you the Word. And He will give you more insight and more understanding of how it fits and goes together than all the professors and academicians of all of the schools in the country. God will teach you. Will you listen? Will you make yourself available and open to be trained by the Lord? You can become wise and astute in the Lord, if you're willing. Father, thank you for your word to us this morning. Open our hearts to receive it. Speak to us. Remind us of our priorities. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for setting your disciples straight. Uh, that the, the most cherished and precious gift we have is eternal life in your presence. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have made yourself available to reveal to us the Father. And the Father is available to reveal to us uh, the depths of your being. And so we can come to know you, Lord, uh, through your own teaching and your own guidance. And we thank you that it doesn't depend on IQ or academic background or any of those things necessarily, but it depends on a humble heart willing to bow in your presence and be taught of you. Uh, we come to you this morning. Give us that hunger and thirst. In Jesus' name, amen.